You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is an attorney who represents startups, nonprofits, arts organizations, and people who work in the creative industries. As an arts entrepreneur, Brian is the founder and CEO of Performing Arts Live, a Pennsylvania nonprofit corporation dedicated to creating and supporting live performance opportunities for jazz and electronic artists. Its flagship program is the Allentown Jazz Fest. Brian is a TEDx speaker, a Grammy voter, and jazz musician. Creative Confidential begins now. Our guest today is Stephanie Gardner. Stephanie is a writer and a director for film and theater. Past clients include Ellie Wiesel, Yale University, Urban Stages, and Allentown's Miller Symphony Hall. Her most recent film, If I Had a Piano, I'd Play You the Blues, has won Best of Show at the Greater Lehigh Valley Filmmakers Festival. Stephanie received her MFA in Dramatic Writing from New York University's Tisch School of the Arts and a BA from the George Washington University. Stephanie, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Brian. Well, we had a you know we've had a couple of conversations which uh, led us here today, and um, you know part of what the podcast is about is is doing creative work and you know how one can get to that spot if they uh, if that's their goal. And um, you know you've certainly been in the Lehigh Valley region, a name that you're starting to see a lot as a filmmaker. And there's sort of a burgeoning, you know, film scene here. So, you know, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about your, you know, your educational background, how you, you know, why you chose NYU, for example, and, you know, we'll start at the beginning. Well, I've always been a writer since I could talk. Uh, I actually had a typewriter in first grade and typed out a full-length play, or so my parents tell me. But um, so I guess it always started with writing. And growing up, I lived in a very musical, artistic household. So I was always surrounded by music. So my first passion was creating music. I used to compose music a la Broadway show tunes and started writing musicals. So at Emmaus High School, I put on a full-length original musical comedy, The Not-So-Average Joe, which I wrote and directed and shamefully starred in. (laughs) Um, That was the day I learned that I was not an actress, but uh, it was a very powerful moment because I realized my true calling was to write and to direct and to create words and music that, that other people can hopefully respond to. So from there, I went to the George Washington University for my undergraduate degree. And, you know, most people don't realize that D.C. is actually a very cultural city and full of a good music scene, a good theater scene. And so I kind of blossomed there and I studied literature and creative writing and music. And I put on my second full-length musical comedy at the George Washington University called The Point of No Return which I wrote and directed and did not star in, thankfully, and brought on board a really talented composer named Campbell Charcy, who uh, composed and arranged the music for me. Taking some of my original musical concepts, which I had been fiddling with, but he, you know, at that point I realized I'm not a composer, and I brought in him, who's a genius, and 
So we had a really nice collaboration. And by then, I was over musicals, so I decided I wanted to focus more on straight playwriting. And I was looking for places to go after college, and the choice was law school, uh, creative writing, MFA, or travel the world. There's two, I, there's two really well, good options in that list. I, I didn't <laughs> I didn't want to take the LSATs, I guess, is, yeah. is one thing. And I also was coming to the realization that I'm a writer. That's who I am. It's just the core of, of my being. And certainly I could use that in a legal profession and it might even aid me. But I just felt like me personally, I could have more of an impact on the world through creative arts in that that's just how I express myself. That's just how I find relevant things to say about the world, um, which, you know, similarly in you know a public service position, you can do good by creating policy or by fighting for equal rights or whatnot. But my chosen path in, in doing things was the arts. And um, so when you were going back to the high school thing, that all that interests me because it's un inconceivable to me that you know once in a while you'll hear about someone who is who at is a high school student that did something like that but it's not very rare and even i think less rare to have the school put the production on i i mean i think at least in my well, the school didn't entirely put the production on. I, I put the production on. I had to kind of jump through a lot of hoops to get the school to let me to do it. Okay. Uh, I I managed to do it through the auspices of the required community service project for graduation. And I put in way more hours than was required for that project. But it did take some convincing to give me the space for the performance and for the rehearsals and, and all that. But I think the important thing about that musical was that set the foundation for everything I do now is, you know, each year I do more projects and I create new events around it and everything harkens back to what I learned. I mean, each project you, it builds upon the last one. You learn right. more and more each time and then you kind of gather a, a little box of ideas for that you gathered in each project, what you did right, what you did wrong. And, you know, you kind of dig into that box when you need to solve a problem to know what to do better the next time. And, you know, that started with that musical where I, you know, had to learn how to organize a cast of, of actors. And I had to learn how to audition and how to uh, get a venue and how to sell tickets and how to do marketing. And, you know, it was maybe a small scale, but everything that I do today on larger scales, I had to do then. Right. It, it really struck me because I was following uh, the most recent project you did in Emmaus where, you know, you really have – you know, one thing I tell people is, is that being good by itself is not nearly enough if you want to have any kind of – you know, earn any kind of living, you know, doing creative work, you know, you can be the best playwright or, you know, filmmaker, musician, but that by itself, and, you know, that's fine and well, but unless you can create the circumstances for that work to be exhibited or consumed by people, you're not going to ever get out of the, out of your, 
out of the basement or out of the garage band or, you know, or rehearsal room. So um, there's a lot of talent out there. And now we live in an age where it's not special to be a filmmaker or to be a playwright or because anyone can do it. And, you know, we're, you don't need to purchase film strips to make films anymore. And so anyone with a camera, with a phone, can fancy themselves a filmmaker. So, yeah, there is a lot of talent and creativity going around. So it's essential. That has to be first. You know, the idea, the story, the art, the whatever your medium is, you know, honing that craft and has to come first. But on top of that, then you have to be proactive and market yourself and uh, or you won't, you know, no one will see the work. Right. Which is fine for some people. And it's, and it's you know, to some degree, it's it's fine for me. I'm not looking for, you know, millions and millions of Twitter followers. I don't even have Twitter. But you 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 create work to have an impact on humanity. So, you know, ideally, the more people who see it and experience it, you know, maybe a handful of those people will get something meaningful out of it. And that's the goal. So you have to get it out there somehow. Well, and the, and the barrier, like you said, the barrier to entry is much lower than now than it ever was because you don't have to buy film. You don't have to have it processed. You don't have to physically handle all of that stuff. Which um, makes just, it harder because now there are millions of fish in the sea right. and you have to kind of stand out. I envy the, you know, the French New Wave directors who were going through similar struggles and finding financing and, you know, they didn't have money. How are we going to do this? Well, we'll just shoot it guerrilla style on the street. We'll use real people. We'll, you know, no, per make no permits. Just yeah. Go out there and do it until I've, the police stop you. It's, it's similar to today. If you want to be an independent artist, it's just so many more people are now doing that. So right. it takes more, I guess, to stand out. And that's where you have to think outside the box in terms of marketing and, and just do it. Tell me a little bit, just to jump around a little bit, tell me about, you know, what, what was it like when you arrived at NYU? Well, so I had a really unique experience. I didn't have the typical NYU experience. And that goes back to how I got there, which is, I you know, I definitely made the choice. I'm going to be a writer, and I'm going to, I would like to travel the world. So I found a program that allowed me to do both. Uh, NYU at that time had just opened a satellite graduate program for the Tisch School called Tisch Asia. And the full graduate program was in Singapore. So I spent two years getting an MFA in dramatic writing, which consists of screenwriting, television writing, and playwriting, with the intention that I would go in, and my concentration would be playwriting. And so I, I packed my bags and went to Singapore. And, and Naturally. Like, so, as we all have done. Yeah. So, and I, I mean, the crazy thing was, it was a new program. I was... In the second year that the program existed, the first year was just their film school. Mm -hmm. The second year, they introduced writing and animation. And so I was in the second year of its existence, but ended up being in the first graduating class of that program, which is pretty cool and unique. It doesn't exist anymore. So now we're this 
kind of small, interesting batch of writers, animators, and filmmakers. But so I went to Singapore and I shared the school didn't have housing for the students. It didn't. Uh, <laughs> so I kind of went without a place to live, which was a big life experience. It prepared me for New York years later when I moved there. Well, how did well, how did that in like in a very that when you say that I have no concept of of what so what actually happened when you arrived in Singapore? I had booked a hostel in advance to stay for a week or two. So you were so as far as that aspect of it, you were on your own. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and the hostel had a two week limit, so then I was kind of screwed. <laughs> but. Yeah, and there was a network of, you know, there were lots of students in this boat, but there were only eight other people in my MFA class. And there were more film. I ultimately lived with film students who had been there a year prior. Mm -hmm. And they were renting uh, government subsidized housing from locals. And so I got a room in that, and it was a gorgeous flat with a beautiful panoramic view of Singapore and Indonesia in the distance. Uh, and that actually was one way that I actually got introduced to filmmaking because now I'm living with these two film students and they started recruiting me to act in their projects and to, you know, so I was starting to see, I had never been around the film set. I was pure theater and, you know, I write poetry and prose as well, but this was new to me and it was exciting. And so I guess you could say I got seduced by film in, right. in grad school and ended up concentrating on screenwriting. So for the second and final year of the program, you pick a concentration. You're still taking classes in the other mediums, but my thesis project was a feature screenplay that I wrote. So, And the rest is history. I got to direct my first film in Singapore because one of the classes was a collaboration between writers and directors and the point was not for the writers to then become the directors well, I was going to say that's a huge leap I I actually lucked out because we got randomly paired with each writer got two filmmakers and the the concept was the writer writes the script and then the filmmakers one's a producer one's a director right but I got a really chill group of two guys who we're kind of tired because all they've been doing all year was making films. And I said to them, you know, I really want to direct a film. I know nothing about it, but um, maybe you'll let... There were two films we had to do as a group, that that class. And I said, maybe you'll let me direct one. And I lucked out and they did. And since they knew what they were doing, I mean, they helped out a lot. But... Um, and this was fairly recently, though. This was only like what eight years ago, seven. This would have been about six years ago. Yeah. Okay. And so I made my first short, and what? But we did something cool. Is we we wrote the scripts. Like we had kind of a TV writing room approach to this. So we would come up with the ideas together. I pitched them an idea. They pitched ideas back to me. I then went and wrote the script. They helped me with it. So um, it was really collaborative, and that was fun. And it, the the short that came out of it is called The Mentor, and it's on my website. You can see it. But that was my and, very first one. And and while while you and while we're on that topic, let's just remind everybody. So if you know, so all of the the work that that Stephanie's regard re referring to, uh, you can uh, view on her website, which is 
the right the stephaniegardner.com so t h e stephaniegardner.com and it'll be up on the website uh, with a link so everyone can check it out yeah uh, and not all of the works on there. There's a lot of stuff that unfortunately can't be posted online, but there are at least samples of things. And the mentor is on there. It was just a fun kind of dark comedy that ultimately got banned in Singapore. Banned. In, that's the best advertising you can have, though, really, you know. So then I moved after grad school. You know, the choice was the obvious choice was L.A. or or New York and I ended up choosing New York because I still had the theater bug in me and I knew New York a little better and, and the city excites me. So I moved there and just slowly started to teach myself filmmaking because mm -hmm. I really was still a novice when I left. I didn't go to school for filmmaking. I went for, for writing. So I created a project called 10 to 1 Films where I decided to write and direct a film a month for 10 months while I was in New York City. And this allowed me to not only hone my writing chops as a screenwriter to do it quickly and to mm -hmm. kind of practice story craft, but it also forced me to learn the different aspects of filmmaking, you know, as a director. How do you talk with cinematographers? Where do you find cinematographers? Uh, the importance of sound on set, the importance of lighting on set, all these things that I really didn't have knowledge of. I kind of picked up one by one by doing these very shoddy, <laughs> low-budget uh, short films, but they were fun, and it helped me build a network and uh, just excitement around creating work. And I, I think the thing that interests me, among the other things that, you know, in our conversations is that the one thing I notice is that you are one of those people where you and the work are the same thing. Definitely. You know, I think, you know, your creative output and you are not, are, are inseparable. And, you know, almost, and if this, this may sound odd or hokey, but, you know, it's almost as if the idea has to come into being and you are the vehicle for it. Do you know what I mean? Does that Yeah, I mean, whenever I talk about filmmaking as a profession or you know there's no choice to me it's just who I am not just filmmaking but creating art and over my life I've had different vehicles of creating it you know be it music be it poetry be it theater but it's just who I am it's how I live it's how I ex exist there's no alternative for me so I mean, was there ever any period in your life, high school, you know, leading up to college where, you know, you, you had seriously considered some other field of study or some other endeavor? Yes, but it always was supplementary to also being an artist. I <laughs> I think when I was in high school, my fantasy was to be a Supreme Court justice and write hit Broadway musicals from the bench. <laughs> It's not too late. <laughs> but the the I went to GW largely because it was in Washington DC and I had an avid interest in politics. You know, I did go to college thinking I would want to be the press secretary to the president or I would want to be someone who influenced politics and government and policy in a positive way. 
I got very tainted in D.C. I worked as an intern for two summers on Capitol Hill, first Mm -hmm. for Congressman Dent and then for Senator Specter. And both of those were amazing experiences, and I learned a lot. But I also learned that I don't think, you know, just observing, you don't do much as an intern. It's more of a apprenticeship where you observe how things work. And it just wasn't for me. I just felt like the type of change I would want to make, I would have to make a lot of other sacrifices. And maybe, you know, I'd have more control over being an artist than a politician. No doubt. More control over what I say, how I express it. And I think the arts are essential to the world going around. And you can you can change people, albeit maybe small, but you can have an impact through creating arts and sharing that with others. And I just thought it'd be more effective and more pleasurable for me to do it that way than to try and be a politician. Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, politics is a team sport. And, you know, traditionally, um, you know, Democrats are are much better team players than Republicans are, which is why they've been, you know, winning all the recent elections, you know, at the national level. But, um, you know, I've been in, there was a congressman through a family friend that I used to go to the to his office in DC and kind of observe and you know bills would come out and you know the legislative aides wouldn't even read them because the it you know the leadership said we are voting yes on you know house bill you know 1426 or whatever it was so yeah you're you're totally right i mean as uh, doing what you do you can you can influence many more people than i think you think you can yeah, the odd thing is I've become pretty apolitical over the years somehow. I guess that's the great thing about being a writer is you can and you should jump into so many different people's shoes that I don't like being unless there are a few things I'm very passionate about, but I don't like taking a stand one way definitely because in the world of writing, you know, you have characters who come from different backgrounds, who have different beliefs. And that to me is powerful to explore so many different people's perspective and see where we can find a common ground. That's the power of, of creating art and, and working with actors and, and fictional characters who are also real and who, you know, actors who are real people then kind of form the characters. So there's this nice balance between reality and fantasy. And I think it helps create situations and dialogue that is hard to do in, in real life, but important. So in, you know, taking that sentiment and, you know, bringing it forward to the, to the present day, maybe we could, uh, you know, talk about if I had a piano a little bit and, and, you know, where, what you'd like to happen for that, project. I know you've been uh, doing the film festival circuit and, and trying to get it, you know, out that way. Yeah. I mean, if I had a piano is not, you know, <laughs> creating a large dialogue about some great important social issue. It's more for me, a, a, a nice piece of poetry. Um, it's a piece that is meant to create a mood and to uh, create a feeling of sensuality. And, you know, it explores 
love, lust, desire, sensuality, all these things in a very hopefully organic way. It's a very visceral film. So it's it's kind of different than what I've been talking to you about. Um, it's a short piece told through images and through the music's very important in it. The sound design's very important in it. The chemistry between the actors is very important in it. It's not really a story-driven piece. So it's it's different than my training at NYU and, and what I had been previously doing. It was more just an expression of a feeling and hoping to kind of sweep people into that world for the six minutes of the film. And you shot that where, locally, or did you shoot that in in New York? I shot half of it in New York in Jackson Heights, Queens, and the other half uh, here in Emmaus at my parents' property. But there's not much you can do with it. It's really, you know, I can just hope to have as many screenings because it's really a piece made for the big screen, the sound is surround sound and it you know the sound is subtle but so important and mm-hmm. subconsciously you get that more in a theater setting and the images are shot the cinematography is designed for a big theater screen so i mean i think it looks very nice online but the full experience you, it's true cinema you get swept away in the theater space and um so i'm thrilled that i've already had about four or five screenings and you know, hopefully it's just the beginning for the next year. I hope to take it to more and more festivals that you can experience it in the theater. But beyond that, there's not much you can do with it. <laughs> right. Well, and, and <laughs> one thing you would you would mention that I know drives, um, you know, musicians that are that are purists nuts is that you put a lot of care into sound engineering and you know where the where the musical image is going to appear if it's going to be panned in to the right ear or if it's going to sound like it's in the back of the room or you know do the drums sound like they're in the middle of the room or do they are they in the back that kind of stuff and you know then it gets compressed down to an mp3 or or worse yet like the compression that you know that appears on amazon.com which is atrocious uh to some and you know you have people listening to it in the car or on an ipod and with crappy headphones and and they don't really get the full intention of what you were trying to deliver. Yeah, fortunately I had a very good sound design team based in Finland uh led by Marco Ventola and he created a he created multiple files for me. So I have a specific file, sound file that's for the internet. So the sound does sound pretty good if you're listening on your headphones mm-hmm. in the internet. Uh it just will s- be a bigger experience in the theater and his sound files for me in the theater are are multiple layers you know the dialogue tracks are one layer the sound designs one layer the music's one layer there's a voiceover that's um kind of booms when you're in the theater that's another layer so fortunately i worked with you know a very talented professional who was able to give me the best quality both for internet and for um film and should it ever have a place on TV, he has a TV track for it too. So that helps to have, and that was something that took years for me too to come to the point where I'm actually working with legit professionals who know what mm-hmm. their trade and who, you know, who I can count on to not only understand creatively what I'm looking for, but have the expertise to to give me these different tracks so that I know when I go to screen it in a theater to make sure that it's the theater 
you know, 5.1 sound. Or- this is like the old saying of uh, if you think it's expensive to hire a pro, wait till you hire an amateur because then you have to end up, uh, you know, redoing it. So Absolutely. Um, well, um, you know, one, one thing I did want to, you know, ask a little bit about and, and you know, has always been um, interesting to me is the decision to pursue, you know, whatever it is, whether it's writing or sculpting or, or painting or, or music or what have you, you know, it, it, in order to be successful. And what I mean by that is just to live, you know, to have some kind of standard of living, you know, not millionaires, not, you know, but have a roof over your head, you know, have a car, you know, and, and live some kind of life, you know, it requires a tremendous amount of drive and discipline and you really have to be very resourceful about how you go about things. And like we were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, I know you, you, I believe you just went to Germany or did I imagine? No, I did. In, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you were in Berlin not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. At the European film festival, this screen, if I had a piano. But if you, you know, if you wait for other people to make it happen for you, it, it will never happen. So like, in that specific case, you know, how do you get over to Berlin? Are you raising money? Are you, are you, are, are the funds coming from commercial work that you're doing on the side? Do you have a day job? I mean, that's always been interesting to me about the reality of, you know, the, the price you have to pay to do what you want to do on your own terms. Sure. Well, I guess, you know, a few years back after, you know, after the 10 to 1 films, after I shot a short called And If I Stay, I did a music video for a hip-hop duo called Love Yourself, which speaks out against domestic violence by the Gecko Brothers. Uh, you know, after the 10 to 1 films, it kind of opened the door to collaborating with other artists and doing different film projects. Um you know, slowly I became more confident as a writer-director and got small gigs here, small gigs there. And, you know, over the years, I just, it came to the point where I realized I could do this professionally and there's no reason not to pursue it. So, you know, it's a choice, first and foremost, to say, I am a filmmaker. I This is where my training is. This is where my my craft is, I mean, there comes to be a point that you do it long enough that it's your skill set. So you you don't really have many skills to do other things. So right. you're kind of stuck with it. But uh, the beauty of being a filmmaker, too, is I think a key characteristic is you have to be adaptable. So it does open me up to other random skills that maybe when thinking about different jobs, you wouldn't think, oh, that's for a filmmaker. But I think being a filmmaker gives you so like a very diverse set of skills that I've taken so many random short-term jobs over the years to help mm-hmm. pay, you know, bills or to help, you know, save up money to go to Berlin for a film festival that right. uh, you just have to think outside the box and how you're going to pay your rent and your bills each month. But, um, and in New York city where I had been the last five years before I relocated back to the Lehigh Valley, it, it is difficult to pay the bills each month, but sure. uh, you know, I I did everything from so you know, filmmaker. It's your primary 
job. And it's always been my priority. And it's always been my priority over maybe some things that are most people's priority, just standard living things. But would you would you have it any other way? No, no. But it's just about finding the balance of getting, you know, what side gigs do you take to supplement it? So I always take jobs that are short term that, you know, generally aren't nine to five that will allow me either flexibility to do my work on the side or to, um, you know, or to do it at hours where I can afford to not be working on my filmmaking. So it's just about compromise and choices. And just frankly, the the other jobs have never been my priority. It's a means to an end. And I find that, you know, honesty with an employer on that regard will take you a long way. Right. Because uh, I don't, you know, I don't want to be unfair to whoever is, you know, giving me a side job. If it's something I think will interrupt my filmmaking, I won't take it. Right. But uh, you, you don't want to be sitting there at a desk, you know, pounding on a novel while you're supposed right, to be uh, right. doing financial reports right. or something. But the best job I've ever had, I think, in, in this example, was I, I got a night gig working for a pay-per-view company uh, called In Demand. And so from 5 p.m. to 2 a.m., Monday through Friday, I went to this office and I did what they call quality control, where I watched everything that goes to your TV for pay-per-view to make sure there were no glitches in it. So it, it was great because it was actually a pretty decent paying job. Since I was working the night shift, they paid you more. Mm-hmm. And there was no management around to oversee your work. So they had to kind of trust you to do the job. Right. And I did do the job. But it was enjoyable because I'm watching, I'm watching feature films. I'm watching anime. I even had to watch adult entertainment that goes on demand. So, you know, it was certainly a learning experience. <laughs> and I think I learned more about filmmaking. You know, I'd say... My filmmaking education came from, you know, at least 50% on set experience. That's that's key. It's just being on set, learning trial by error. But the other 50% is watching other films or reading other films or, you know, watching the DVD extras on a, on you know, the Criterion Collection. They're, they're almost film classes on those DVD extras mm-hmm. and studying the films you like over and over again and Obs- thinking... Observation and, and applying that to your craft. And this, this job at In Demand allowed me to do that because I'm watching everything, the good, the bad, the ugly that goes on, on pay-per-view, but it's like everything that I'm watching, somebody bought. So there's lots of things that I didn't like. I mean, that I thought were bad pieces of work but i mm-hmm. but i decided to study it and say well what why don't i like this work what isn't working in the structure or the directing or the cinematography or the sound that isn't working for me that i think is bad and how would i do it differently and is it that easy to do it different so it was kind of a, a really great study in content for mm-hmm. me so that was a great way to you know and the beauty of it was I was free during days, so I was working on several film sets and making making uh, both side money and side experience, so that was kind of the life. All right. Hopefully everybody that, that has uh, spent some time with us today will, will go to Stephanie's website. Please check out her work. Stephanie is, is far too polite to say this, but so I'll say it, but uh, 
there is a donate button on on our website and and the only way that you know creative work gets done is if someone out there is a patron and can create the circumstances for for it to happen so uh it's actually tax deductible too there you go. I'm, I have the donations through a group called Fractured Atlas that are 501c3, so you can make tax-deductible donations. There you have it. Stephanie, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I, I, maybe we'll do this again soon. And, and you know, definitely, um, you know, looking to uh, – we'll follow your career and uh, hopefully uh, see some more great stuff. Great. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Okay. Thanks, Steph. Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. To have Brian consult for your arts organization or public speaking engagements, or if you have legal matters you want to discuss, contact him at tucklaw.com. That's T-U-K-Law.com. For future episodes, please subscribe to Creative Confidential on iTunes or visit us at creativeconfidential.net. This has been a Steve Mittman social media creation. Steve Mittman social media.com.